All right, Leah. Yes. Question as old as time. Yes. If you could be in Cats with any actor. No. <laughs> who would it be? So you have to live with it. No. If you haven't seen this Cats trailer, people, it's something. You're missing out on the nightmares that it will cause you because it is traumatizing. <laughs> but well, let's set up the scenario here. You're in Cats. You're ca- yeah. you're catsted, if you will. Catsed. <laughs> but you do get the option of having one actor or celebrity appearing with you. So you don't have to like endure it as much, like all the pain alone, you okay. have an actor. I'm gonna go the comedic relief route and pick John Mulaney. That's a smart move. <laughs> okay. There we are need- lots of options I could have gone with for we John need- Mulaney. We need to actually recast this because John Mulaney should have been in that. Yes, he should have. Who wouldn't want to see John Mulaney as a cat? I want to see all the action stop and he just goes, there's dancing in this? <laughs> <laughs> no one told me when I was at the audition. I was only in this for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, John Mulaney, because that movie would just be made better with him in it. Yes. What is your answer? I think... If I'm going to be in something as crazy as Cats, I need up the ante and invite Kanye to the party. Also a great choice. <laughs> because things are going crazy. The cats are dancing at the, what is it, Jingle Ball? Jingle? The Jellicle Ball. The Jellicle Ball. Yes. They're dancing. And here comes Kanye as a cat. He's just like, what the f- is happening? He's like, well, another weird trip. <laughs> Just a normal day and being Kanye. Yeah. (laughs) So that's who I would choose. I like that answer. Anyway, this is Beth Ann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. So today, we're talking about the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Ah. And for once in our lives... At least for the last four episodes, three episodes, we don't need any disclaimers at the top of the episode. Because where we've endured the history of the Rolling Stones and the Who, we're going to have a nice little palate cleanser. Because Springsteen... Everyone needs those. Springsteen does not have any crazy Bender stories that, that I'm aware of, and you'll, you'll see why. He's just... He's American, We've done some, yeah. some Brits for the last two weeks, or two two episodes. So we're just going to take a little breather here and talk about this kid from New Jersey. Bruce Springsteen is born in 1949 in Long Branch, New Jersey. He's that old? Yeah, he's way older than I Wait, thought. Wait, how old is he now? Like, if it's, you said 1949? Yeah. Hold on. So we're almost in, we're in 2019, so that's like, what, 70? 80? Hold on. He's 69. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Knew it was coming. Yes. So he's born in Long Branch, New Jersey, which I feel like from the day this kid was born, he was very much in love with the state of New Jersey and being from New Jersey. Um, So he obviously lived with his mother and father. His mother worked. She was the main breadwinner of the family. She was a legal secretary. So props to her for being a legal secretary in the 50s and being the main breadwinner of yeah. the family. Because his father was an alcoholic, as I feel like most musicians' fathers are. And he tried to work multiple jobs, but he would ultimately end up getting fired and be unemployed. 
which would just make him angrier and he would go drink more. Uh, I read his, I read Springsteen's autobiography called Born to Run and he talks about some of his earliest memories being like his mom would pull up in front of a bar where his dad hung out all the time and he would be tasked with going inside to get his dad at a young age at like age seven like he had to, he had to start traumatizing yeah so he would go into the bar and see like all these dudes just drunk out of their mind he'd be like mom says it's time to go like you need to come home and his dad would just ignore him like he did not have a good relationship oh with his dad oh my god um so there's what that a jerk. His dad, you know, unsurprisingly had he Bruce realizes later in his life that his dad had a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues. He's not he was never formally diagnosed, but he believes that he was bipolar. Mm-hmm. Explains a lot of his behavior. He was raised as a Catholic. He went to Catholic school where he fought with the nuns a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you can't imagine why. Um, but interesting enough, this like religious influence influenced a lot of his later music he okay. he went through a period where he like denounced his catholicism and was like i don't want any part of that as all catholic schoolboys do but he eventually came back to appreciate the education that he got as a catholic schoolboy um but he switched to public school in ninth grade but the transition didn't go super great as we've we've discussed being the transfer kid is never a good situation especially your first year of high school and I watched a documentary where they interviewed some of his teachers and his classmates, and they were like, yeah, he was just the weird, quiet kid who kind of kept to himself, and no one really talked to him. So that's cool. Poor little Bruce. So in 1957, let's backtrack a little bit. He's nine, and our, our friend Ed Sullivan has mm-hmm. Elvis Presley on his show. And little baby Bruce sees Elvis on TV and says, Mom, I want to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Beg and beg and begs his mom for a guitar. And his mom is super into music. His mom is, you know, here supporting him. Dad's not doing much of anything. Mm-hmm. She's always listening to the top 40 stations, introducing him to new music from a young age. Like, go, mom. So, mom rents him a guitar for $6 a week, which in 1957 is probably the equivalent of like, I want to say like $25 a yeah. week now. So, it's not cheap. It's not super expensive, but it's. It's the only way they can afford this guitar. Mm-hmm. Little little Bruce is so frustrated by the fact that he can't instantly play the guitar that he begs his mom to return it. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, this thing doesn't play by itself? Nope. So he, he didn't get the instant satisfaction that he wanted. He wanted to play like Elvis straight out the gate. <laughs> Same. Been there. Yeah. Trying to learn guitar at 26. It ain't easy. So he, but he never loses his dream of wanting to be a musician. He's, but they're broke because only mom has a job. Mm-hmm. So in 1964, several years later, he's 14. He sees the Beatles on TV, also on at Sullivan. This time, um, the Stones are big. He's listening to them all the time. He really is into the animals. So he scrapes up all the money he can find. Uh, works. He like mows neighbors' lawns. He begs. I think his mom loans him his last like four dollars, which is a big deal because they have no money. And he buys his first guitar for eighteen ninety five hmm. at the Western Auto Appliance Store, <laughs> which I don't know what this place looked like, but I, I because it's called the Auto Appliance Store, I picture walking into like an Auto Zone and there's just yes. a guitar behind the counter. And they're yes. like, I want that one. But it has to be like an older Auto Zone that like it, the company was gonna flop, and they said, you know what, we'll improve this. <laughs> Sell guitars. Yeah. So he buys his first guitar for eighteen ninety five at the Western Auto Appliance Store, the Auto Zone. 
And he starts playing with a band called The Rogues. They don't last very long. <laughs> like The Detours. Like The, the Detours. <laughs> so he actually spends time learning the guitar this time. Funny mm-hmm. enough how that works, he gets better at it this time. Wow. Um, he talks about how he would literally just lay on his back in his bed and just practice, you know, doing the his chords for hours and hours and hours until his fingertips bled. He would fall asleep with his guitar on his chest. Like, Aww. he put in the work to learn a guitar this time. Yeah. He learned his mistake. You got to practice with that thing. So later that year, his mom takes out a loan to buy him a $60 Kent guitar, which, wow. while better than that, you know, 1895 guitar from the auto store, is not a great guitar. But it means a lot to him because they have no money. It, his dad did not support his dream of being a musician at all. Did not support anything the kid did, really. He wanted him to play football. <laughs> Surprising. So he writes a song about it later in life called The Wish, because he owes like his whole career to his mom taking this risk and getting him this $60 That's guitar. That's so sweet. Even sweeter is. So he joins a garage band with this $60 guitar, and they kick him out because his cheap guitar sounds bad. No! But he doesn't have the heart to tell his mom that that's why he get, got kicked out. So he just makes up an excuse like that he was late to practice. And that's why they kicked him out. Oh my god! Isn't that the sweetest thing? He does eventually find a band that'll let him and his cheap guitar in. They're called the Castiles. Okay. Also not a great name. And they're, they're in Freehold, New Jersey at this point. At this point, because dad can't hold a job, they had to move into a smaller house uh, in Freehold from wherever I just said he was born. And Freehold, according to some people in this documentary, was more than ready to embrace the rock and roll revolution. There's like a huge teenage population. People like rock and roll. And they, these people credit Bruce single-handedly with creating the change that was needed in the musical scene in Freehold. So hmm. go, Bruce. Uh, but some, some things, the band didn't get along super great. Uh, Bruce did not intend to start out as a singer. Like, he just wanted to play guitar. But his front man in the, in the Castiles wasn't a super strong front man. So he had to kind of pick up some of the vocal slack. So then he kind of developed into this second front man thing that obviously didn't go over super great mm-hmm. with the original front man. So the band breaks up. Around the same time, when he's 17, he gets in a pretty bad motorcycle accident and he gets a really bad concussion, which it's, this, it's the 60s and they have no money. So yeah. you can imagine the level of treatment. They, they don't really know about concussions no. in the 60s either. It, so, but because of this concussion, he gets out of the draft when he's 19 because it shows up on x-rays because it was such a bad concussion wow. that he did not receive treatment for. Um, he, so he and all his friends get drafted for the service, but because he had this concussion, he couldn't serve. That's a butterfly effect moment right there. Yeah. Like if he didn't get in that car accident... Maybe he would have went to the war and, and died. Yeah, one of his one of his best friends got drafted and died. So, jeez, um, which so he he had a legitimate reason. Like he wasn't a draft dodger. Like you can't go serve when you had this horribly untreated concussion right. that caused brain damage. Pretty much, it's what it is. But he felt guilty about this for his entire life that he couldn't go serve, which is why so many of his songs are so political and so anti-Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And he had very strong feelings about not serving in the war. So he continues to jump through a bunch of bands from 
the time the Castiles disband to 1971. The kid bounces back and forth between the Jersey Shore, Nashville, and Richmond, Virginia, which was pretty cool. Hmm. Didn't know he started there. He frequented the Jersey Shore the most because A, his parents live there, so yeah. free place to crash. His sister at this point has married and he can also crash with her. In the Jersey Shore, they had a bunch of beach bars because it's, mm-hmm. it's Jersey. It's Jersey in the 60s and surfer rock is a thing. But as with all beach bars, it was an older crowd that hung out there and they wanted to hear covers. Bruce didn't like playing covers. So he and some friends kind of developed this underground music scene that was like just a constant jam session every night. Like once the old people left the beach bars, they would kind of close down and the younger kids would come out and they would just jam. There were no songs that they had like pre-prepared. They would just go for it. That's really cool. Um, And he, he loved those. They helped develop his style and give him a name. And then one day he just kind of decides to move to California for a while. Fun fact about the move to California, Bruce does not have a driver's license. And he and two other dudes decided to split up the drive to California. Bruce has never driven. He learns to drive on this cross-country trip to California. Time to to figure it out now or never. Get kicked out of the nest. Uh, So the whole time he's driving without a license, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how they did not get pulled over because it was a manual too. Oh, So like those first couple of hours in that road trip, they would, I forget the name of the guy that he rode with, but he would put it in gear, and then they would change seats while the car was moving so that Bruce could drive and <laughs> keep going. And around this time, oh, so when he moves to California, he lives in a surfboard shop because where else would you live in California? Oh, of course. He has no money. He has no band. He just moves into a surfboard shop and sleeps on the concrete floor. Wow. Yeah, uh, but he gets to spend his free time, you know, creating music and surfing and hooking up with a bunch of girls. So mm-hmm. he's living the dream. And at this time, someone, no one really knows who, gives him the nickname The Boss because in these bands that he's in, he's always the money guy. He's the one that takes the money, disperses it to the band members. But also, the other reason he has this <laughs> this nickname is because, I mean, they're in these bands, they don't have real jobs, there's a lot of downtime. So they would get into some really competitive Monopoly games <laughs> in which Bruce was the commanding, commanding banker. That's amazing. He really hates this nickname, but it's stuck for the rest of his life. I feel like, though, if you know that's how your name came from, you just need to make something up. It can't be from a Monopoly <laughs> game. You have to be known as the boss because you ran, like, a front. Nope. And you were the illegal bookie. Monopoly. Eh, all right. So, eventually, after some, he moves back to the East Coast, somehow gets signed to Columbia Records in 1972, and... I don't know what this dude played for the record executives when he got signed, but for some reason, when he makes his first album, they expect it to be a Springsteen solo acoustic album. They don't do that. It's a shocker. Instead, Bruce goes out and hires a bunch of the old bandmates that he'd played with throughout the years and forms the E Street Band, which he's still with. Mm -hmm. Like, this is his end-all, be-all band. In this band is a saxophone player who they were best friends their entire life. It's really Aww. adorable. He passed recently, like, I think I want to say, like, in the last couple of years. That and they sucks. were, like, best friends until the day that he died. It was real cute. Um, so they record their first album, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, his, his love Aww. tribute to New Jersey, which released in 1973. New Jersey, he's obsessed with it anyway because it's his home state. And I feel like that's just a New Jersey thing to do. <laughs> but... 
he he's very poetic with his lyrics and his songs and he describes New Jersey as like this in-between place like he never really felt at home there but it's also his home yeah like it's where he ultimately always comes back that also makes sense geographically because if you've ever been to Jersey like the top of the state is basically just an extension of New York City yeah he says not quite New York City but it's not quite the country right because the more further you go down yes there's country but it's like I don't know how to describe it. Like, that's a great way you yeah. described it. Because it's not the country you would expect. It's an in-between. Yeah. And then you got the interstate coming through. So, like, you have a field and then there's the interstate. So. Yeah. So, he loves New Jersey. And he will continue loving New Jersey forever. The big singles off of this first album were Blinded by the Light and For You. Critics loved it. They called him the next Bob Dylan, which, you know, no pressure at all on this no. young kid who's making an album. They loved the lyrical poeticism, which... Bruce is a great lyricist. Like, mm-hmm. I'll, I will not argue with that with with anyone. Like, he knows how to write lyrics. Um, the interesting thing, I'll, I'll talk about that now. He's always praised as, like, the hero of the working class America. Homeboy never had a real job. Like, he's just played music forever. I, That's I, interesting irony. Yeah, he got the, the inspiration from, like, watching his, his parents and especially his sister. Uh, side note that I didn't talk about earlier. So his sister got pregnant at, I want to say, 16 or 17. Okay. She ended up marrying the guy that got her pregnant. Like, they ended up having a family. But he, like, mad respected her because she could have easily been like, I'm not doing this. Peace out. Leave baby with mom and go move across country. Uh, But she, like, buckled down. They both, mom and dad, got, like, really good jobs. So he respected his sister and drew a lot of inspiration from her life, which is pretty cool. That's cool. So while critics love this album... It didn't sell super great. Surprise. Um, so, but he was signed to a two-record deal. Three-record deal. He was signed to a multiple-record deal. I don't know if it's two or three. So the, he has to keep making music. Columbia's not going to let him go. Just because his album sales kind of sucked. So that album, first album, came out in January 1973. Album two comes out in September 1973. Okay. They were recording... Like, all hours of the day, writing, recording. I do not envy how these two records are made. It sounds horrible. But he definitely grows in this second album-making experience, as as you should when you're making your second album. It includes songs such as The Wild, The Innocent, and E Street Shuffle. The songs get bigger. He kind of develops more of an R&B vibe. The band starts to really mesh and sound good. And all the songs from this album romanticize teenage street life. Oh, yay. For someone who spent his teenage years kind of being an outcast, he's real obsessed with the way teenagers spend their time. Also includes the song Fourth of July, Asbury Park, which is one of his more well-known songs. So where he cranked out these first two albums super fast, mm-hmm. the third album takes 14 months to write, with six months spent on one song, Born to Run. Wow. So there's like four chapters. I mean, book. is the song good? So here's a disclaimer that I said there were no disclaimers. I'm not, after doing all this research and listening to all the Springsteen songs, I wouldn't call myself a Springsteen fan. Okay. So I'm not going to criticize the music. It's it's all right. All right. Well, maybe it was good for him. But what happened was this was the this this was the last record on his deal. Okay. If he did not sell these records, Columbia was going to kick him to the curb. Okay. So they gave him this enormous budget to this kid who has had two flop albums and is under tremendous pressure. So 
he he could hear the album in his head, but couldn't get it out. Like, mm-hmm. whenever they would mix the tracks, it just didn't sound like the way he wanted it. So he... he his friends with a guitarist named Steve Van Zant, and he's finally like, Steve, I need your help. I need you to come join my band. So Steve joins the band at this point. And Steve was able to help him get what was in his head out onto paper and trans like translate it to the other musicians in the band. Right. But when the album was finished, Springsteen gets the final mixtapes, listens to them in his hotel room, and oh no, gets the final mixtapes, listens to them. And immediately throws them out the window because he hates them. Ah! Where a car runs over them. Oh, no! I would like to add. So, uh, somewhere, there's a real pissed off recording tech because he just wasted a bunch of tapes. Mm-hmm. So they mix the album a second time. This time he's chilling in a hotel room. He listens to the final mixes. And he throws them out the hotel window. Oh, my gosh. You need to chill. He was like, this is not the album that was in my head. Like, you guys are messing it up. Yeah. I want to scrap it. We're going to start over. We're going to substitute in some live recordings, hmm. which they ended up doing to a degree. They It's it's an interesting album because it's some songs are live, but they're not like called out that they're live. It's, yeah. not, it's not a live album, but it's not a studio album. It's an interesting album. They finally got it the way they wanted. So they released the album Born to Run on August 25th, 1975. It is a commercial success. It takes some time to get there, but it does peak at number three. Well, so Columbia is like, you can stay. At least it was worth it. They, but Columbia makes Bruce angry with the promotion of this album because they keep calling him the future of rock and roll. He's like, don't call me that hmm. because when I don't live up to that, it's your fault. Yeah, Which, I get that. Valid point. So this, this and Born in the USA are his two biggest albums. If you say Springsteen, pretty much anyone will know one of those two albums or those mm-hmm. two songs. So let's talk about some of these songs, this album. We got... Thunder Road, which the lyrics of Thunder Road talk about a young woman named Mary and her boyfriend and their one last chance to make it real. Hmm. Whatever that means. So Thunder Road ends up becoming like a recurring theme throughout later Springsteen albums. He actually writes a sequel song to Thunder Road called The Promise, which talks about the couple and like how their their life turned out and spoiler it doesn't turn out super great. Hmm. So he, he does this thing where he keeps, he like creates stories in his right. songs, which is cool. And he continues them, but he also goes through some dark phases with these, these narrations. Yeah, I think he's got some problems he's trying to work out through songs. 10th Avenue Freeze Out is a autobiographical song about the formation of the E Street Band. So there's- Interesting. <laughs> there's a character in the song named Bad Scooter which is literally Bruce Springsteen, BS. Oh, okay. Um, in the third verse, they talk about Big Man join the band, which is where Clarence Clemens, the saxophonist, joins. Okay. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And then there's Born to Run, which is written in the first person as a love letter to a girl named Wendy, for which the protagonist in the song just loves, but he doesn't have the patience to love her. Well, that's, that's just tough. <laughs> that's not how love works one thing that has confused me for years is there's a really popular running book called Born to Run and then there's Springsteen's autobiography called Born to Run and the running book is named after the song Born to Run because Christopher McDougall likes to listen to that song while he runs <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole universe of Born to Run <laughs> there's just a fun side fact so 
where he grew in that second album, he grew even more in the third album. Like the songs get deeper. They're like whole mini vignettes about teenage life. Like it's pretty, it's, it's pretty cool. The storytelling that happens. Uh, Springsteen calls it the album where he left behind his adolescent definition of love and freedom Hmm. and it made him an adult and it kind of did more than make him money it made him a legend because this this album the cover art is one of the most iconic images in rock history something i thought that was interesting was so they they have this photo shoot as you do for your album covers right the shoot we're in the 60s here so like we're shooting on film they took 900 shots Holy cow. to get this one shot of Bruce on a car that they ended up choosing. Uh, it's often spoofed a lot. My favorite one that I found was our friends at Sesame Street ripped it off to make Born to Add. Yes. It's adorable. I love it so much. We're going to skip ahead a little bit because the, the period between the thir- third and fourth album doesn't matter. 1978, they make their fourth album called Darkness at the Edge of Town. Why did they name it that? It's because they were all real sad and depressed. Because they're fighting with their manager and the record company for a bunch of legal troubles. I'm not going to pretend to understand what those legal troubles were. Has to the song rights and how Bruce was getting money and how the others were getting money. And it's real confusing and irrelevant to this story. Question. Yes. Per chance, did they dedicate that album to the manager? (laughs) I don't know, but it feels appropriate. That would have been like the biggest <laughs> badass move. I don't know. I wish I knew the answer to that question. In this album, it's where Springsteen kind of fully realizes what these working class characters are. Like, mm-hmm. there's just his lyricism continues to grow, which I don't even know how it's possible because it was pretty rich and born to run. He cranks out album number five, The River, which is a 20 song double album that becomes his first ever number one album which is weird because that's a lot of songs. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and it, it's an interesting album because it doesn't sound like his other albums. It, it starts to have that pop rock sound of the 80s, which is not what you think of when you think of Springsteen. No, I think of Gen X working class. Yeah. But that explains why it was, an, it was his highest grossing because it's what people wanted to listen to. Hmm. To completely flip that whole sound on its head, he releases album number six, Nebraska, which is just him and a guitar, which was also a critical success. Rolling Stone chose it as chose it, chose it as their album of the year, which uh, really, yeah, really, yeah. A, a, a song like what year is that? I don't know. It's in the seventies, right? Late seventies, early eighties. Let me look it up because it's in. I'm not gonna diss on him too much because everyone loves Springsteen. It's just interesting because it's just an acoustic guitar and vocals. It's an acoustic album, 1982. 1982. Um, I mean, yeah. I, hey, that's what the people like. That's, that's what, what the people, people like. like. You know, I, I'm not going to tear it apart. I had nev- honestly never heard of the album Nebraska it's just, until I did this research. interesting because in the 80s, though, like, we're seeing growing rock bands. We're seeing pop. We're seeing synthesizers, new technology. And it's just very maybe Acoustic maybe album. that's maybe that's the appeal of it. I say it's and then, him and a guitar. It was it was him and multiple instruments. It was acoustic. It was yeah. not it was not the pop rock sound of the river. Right. Um, but it influenced a lot of works that would come shortly after. Specifically, you choose the Joshua Tree. Hmm. So take that for what it is. 
Living the best year. All good things happened in 1984. <laughs> yes, a lot of good things happened in he 1984. He releases Born in the USA, which is an insane album for him. Seven singles from that album, which I want to say it only has like 13 songs, mm-hmm. hit the top 10 in the US. Wow. Just the US, so because it's Born in the USA. Yeah, we, we take great pride in our American artists releasing American albums. So let's talk about the song Born in the USA. So we've already talked about how Bruce was kind of mad that he couldn't go serve. He always felt guilty about that he couldn't go serve in Vietnam. And because of that, he was especially sensitive to how Vietnam vets were treated. In the 80s, they were not treated well. Yeah. Um, So he wrote this song as a commentary on how people were treating Vietnam veterans. That's nice. As kind of a tribute to his friends. Uh, It's about, you know, a working class man, as all of his songs are who is facing a spiritual crisis in which he, he's lost. He felt like nothing ties him to society anymore. The government doesn't care about him. His job doesn't care about him. His family doesn't care about him. Mm-hmm. So it's not a patriotic song, y'all. It is interpreted oftentimes as a patriotic song. Like, yeah, like you know. every baseball game ever plays that during the little breaks. Yeah. It's the first song to play. It's a Vietnam protest song, but okay. So it gets even better. In late 1984, the album's selling great. They're playing it on the radio all the time. They're getting a lot of press. Springsteen does a series of shows in the Capitol Center in DC. They all sell out. They get a lot of media attention, including a dude named George Will, who's a conservative columnist in DC. Okay. He comes to one of these shows at the Capitol Center and writes a piece called A Yankee Doodle Springsteen, (laughs) in which he talks about Springsteen being a great example of classic American values. All right. So the 1984 presidential campaign for Ronald Reagan picks up on this. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Uh, so Continue. Will worked as part, not officially, but unofficially worked as part of Reagan's campaign team. Okay. So he thought that because Springsteen's such an all-American guy, he might endorse Reagan okay. for his, his bid of the presidency. But it was very public knowledge if he had done any ounce of research that Springsteen did not support Reagan. Right. So columnist guy... Pushes the idea up to Springsteen's head of... Not Springsteen. Pushes the idea up to Reagan's head of publicity. His name is Michael Deaver. He's not important. So at a campaign stop in the great state of New Jersey, Mm -hmm. Reagan gives a speech. And in that speech, he says, and I quote, America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope in songs so many young Americans admire. New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. Oh, no. And helping you make those dreams come true is what this job of mine is all about. Oh, no. So naturally, this sparks two things. Springsteen's like, what the hell are you talking about? Because I don't really like you. Mm-hmm. Also, the press is like, Mr. Reagan, have you ever listened to a Springsteen song? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, my favorite song's Born to Run. Oh, no. So that, that speech happens September 19th. Okay. Three days later, Springsteen's playing in Pittsburgh. And so he's been getting a lot of press questions about, you know, how do you feel about you know Reagan's comments or whatever? So he doesn't really address them until this night. 
He's introducing his song, Johnny 99, which is about an unemployed auto worker who turns to murder. So he, he's introducing the song. He goes, the president was mentioning my name the other day, and I kind of got to wondering what his favorite album must have been. I don't think it was the Nebraska album. I don't think he's been listening to this one. <laughs> not the first time Springsteen will get into politics. Or not the last time, I should say. Yeah. Uh, the, the album also includes his probably most famously... I'm not going to say that, because I think Born in the USA. It also includes the hit Dancing in the Dark, which is the biggest hit off the album. I don't know if it's the one that's aged the best. Lady Gaga has a song called Dancing in the Dark. Probably not the same song. No. Um, but this music video, have you seen it? No. So it's it's filmed... At a concert, it's a fake concert, uh, and Bruce is singing this song, and he pulls out a random audience member, the audience to come dance with him on stage. Mm-hmm. The audience member is Courtney Cox. Yes, yeah, that's totally not staged. It was a hundred percent staged. Yeah. Um, it launches Courtney Cox's career, though. Really? Yeah. She was a virtually unknown, struggling actress at this point. Someone had the hookup and put her in a Springsteen video. Wow. And then, yeah, shortly after, his friends. Yep. Wow. So she Good owes her whole career Bruce. to Bruce. But when when bands now select a fan out of the stage, it's known as a Courtney Cox moment. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks, Bruce. That, okay, I've heard that phrase yeah, before. Yeah, that's where that comes from. So when he's touring during this Born in the USA tour, Springsteen meets his future wife, Julianne Phillips. They get married a year later. And one of my favorite stories from this tour is Bruce was a very private or is a very private person. He does not like the paparazzi invading his space. So when he's in Sweden, uh, he is flipping through a newspaper and he sees a photo of his hotel room with his stuff in it. He didn't let anyone into his hotel room. So it was taken when he wasn't there, which meant either like hotel staff let him in or they snuck in or something. He's pissed because someone obviously was in his hotel room. He wasn't there. And he normally is pretty good about like not letting his emotions affect his performance. But that night in Sweden, he was just angry. So he comes on stage angry. There's a ton of people there, probably a few more than the venue should have like technically allowed due to yeah. fire codes. And the crowd just kind of feeds off his energy that he's giving and causes $4 million in damages to the venue. Oh! Whoa. It literally, like shook the foundation of this building the amount of like rage that was in the building so that that's cool so also in the 80s around this time several fanzines are made about bruce which i think is adorable because fanzines fanzines like magazines like fan based just about bruce springsteen oh not about like the genre just about bruce pre-tumblr pre-tumblr these are the original fangirls actually one of the original fangirls uh, one of them was called Backroads, and it's still available today on his website. Like, they've continued it, which is hmm. pretty cool. In uh, 1988, Bruce holds a concert in East Germany that attracts 300,000 people. Wow. Which is insane. Journalist Eric Kirschbaum calls it the most important rock concert ever anywhere. Mm-hmm. So important that this dude wrote a book called Rocking the Wall, Bruce Springsteen, The Concert That Changed the World. Hmm. It was conceived... By the Socialist Unity Party's youth group, or youth, like, yeah. sect, in an attempt to, like, soothe the youth of East Germany, who really wanted 
the music and culture of West Germany because the wall is still there. Yeah. They can't get any of the stuff that West Germany is having. Uh, but it's believed that because Springsteen was willing to have this concert in East Germany, it kind of catapulted things and catapulted the resistance and the opposition and helped contribute to the Berlin Wall coming down the following year. That's awesome. So that's pretty cool. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for your contribution. Thank you, sir, for your service. See, Bruce, you shouldn't have been so depressed about not being in the army because look at look at the good you did. You in the achieved world. so much. In 1992, he releases two albums at one time, which is weird, but okay. All right. Called Human Touch and Lucky Town. <laughs> Interesting pairings. <laughs> yeah. So his first two albums that he released in his lifetime were these like super optimistic, dreamed of happiness. Mm-hmm. adulthood as we all start off the next four in his career kind of showed him scared of happiness and being happy and letting himself dream these dreams Aww. so these two he claims happiness for himself they're Aww. they're very happy like he realizes who he is at this point in his life he's gone through a lot of counseling he's battled depression very publicly for a while like he's just become comfortable with who he is which is pretty cool 1994, he gets an Academy Award for his song Streets of Philadelphia oh. in the movie Philadelphia, neither of which I've ever heard of before this. Oh, Philadelphia is a Tom Hanks film. Did not know that. Where he has AIDS. Oh. Yeah. In 1999, he's inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's pretty cool because, so that, you know how they always have like another artist induct them into the Hall of yeah. Fame? So Bono did Springsteen's induction. And then later in 2005, Springsteen does Bono's induction. That's so nice. They're, they're pretty close bros. Like, right. They've been friends for a long time. I can see that. I mean, Bono cites Springsteen as one of his biggest influences, so it mm-hmm. makes sense. In 2004, the great election of 2004, because we learned... That was Kerry and Bush. Yep. So if you may remember, there was a Vote for Change tour. I vaguely yes. remember this. I was it's in the back of my mind. I was not old enough to vote, obviously, at this point. I would have been 11. I would have been 12. But I do remember, I remember seeing the commercials and, and all that stuff. So Springsteen and the East Street Band join in for the Vote for Change tour. They're in great company along with John Mellencamp, the Dixie Chicks, Pearl Jam, R.E.M., Bright Eyes, yes. Dave Matthews Band, and a whole bunch of other musicians. So they hold, the reason that this tour existed is they held these concerts in swing states to, you know, encourage people to vote. They did have a political agenda. They wanted to push the progressive political organization called America Coming Together, but also just go vote, Yeah. as is all of the, the efforts that have ever been put into getting youth to register. So it actually ended with a finale in D.C., which is pretty cool. That's cool. It was very close to election day. I want to say, like, maybe within a week uh, when they had the finale. He, up until this point, Springsteen was always careful to only play benefits that supported causes and never any candidates. Okay. But this changed it. This election year, I mean, it was... It was a it, it was, was a wild time. Very explosive election. I think it was probably the first in a chain of events that we're probably still seeing their bulls up today. Yes. So his song No Surrender ends up becoming the campaign theme for John Kerry. As we know, Kerry did not win. Mm-hmm. In the last days of the campaign, though, he would go and play that song at Kerry rallies. It was the first time he's ever publicly endorsed a candidate. Huh. This continues later. 
in the 2008 election when he starts to play at Obama rallies. Okay. Take, take your stab at what his political beliefs are. Right. In 2009, he wins a Golden Globe for The Wrestler from the movie The Wrestler. Was he in it? No. I don't know. Oh, no. He wrote the song. Sorry. Okay. He, for The Wrestler, the song. Got which it. Which was in the movie The Wrestler. Yeah. Which is kind of confusing. Uh, that same year, we're going to keep this as a four-episode streak of he performed at the Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> I forgot he performed. I did not watch the video. Is that the one where he did it with Britney Spears? Or am I thinking of something No, else? that's Steven Tyler. That's what I'm thinking That's of. a weird one. Um, so we're going to jump ahead. That was 2009. In 2017... Quite a jump. A little thing called Springsteen on Broadway happens. I blocked that from my memory. So thank you for bringing that We're going to talk about that for a second. So this was a concert residency on Broadway, which... I've never heard of happening no. other than this. Like No, residencies are usually for like Vegas. Vegas, yeah. Or some other casino hotel. Like sometimes, yeah. sometimes we have them here on the East Coast at like the National Harbor MGM. Right. Broadway. So it was originally supposed to open on October 3rd, run eight weeks, five shows a week, and then on November 26th. But New York being the way it is, and America being the way it is. Scalpers were selling so many tickets oh, yeah. at such right. high prices. I was wondering where you were going with the way New York is. <laughs> I just picture because it's, it's 2017, and so I just picture people being on the side of the street Correct. with like trench coats full of Springsteen concert tickets. Uh, that they end up extending it. So it was supposed to end on November 26, 2017. They extended it to June 30th, 2018. Hmm. Like it just ended last year. It just ended last June, like a year ago, three weeks ago. So it the show is I don't I don't get it. I really do not get why this was such an appealing show. It's just Springsteen, just him, no other band members. Mm-hmm. He plays an acoustic guitar and a piano, which obviously has to alternate between because he can't play both. Yeah. And he just plays his music and reads like incidents and snippets from his biography i mean part of it tells me it's like man that's like kind of a letdown because it's only acoustic but then there's like a part of me like the fact that they kept selling so many tickets it's kind of like, like a someone liked it a res- kind of respect thing towards yeah him. i get that he want to tell a story and it's like an artistic thing but also i feel like if you're doing a residency yeah. for that long like if i'm going to see a residency program there's going to be lights. There's going to be dancers. Like, I'm going to... The Aerosmith show I'm going to next month is part of their residency. It's like the East Coast run of their Vegas residency because it's at an MGM. Mm-hmm. So that's a production. Like... I, that sounds... There are inflatable toys in the attic. There's like a giant inflatable teddy bear that that's floats fantastic. over you. Like, that's what I want for residency. Yeah. Nope, you got Bruce Springsteen on stage with his guitar. So this initial run was supposed to be 40 shows. It ends up playing for 236 that's, shows. That's a lot. And grosses $113 million. Jeez. Who knows what those scalpers made off of that show. Right. Also, someone had the idea to record it, and it's available on Netflix. Oh. As of... As Netflix? Of, yeah, Netflix. That seems like a YouTube thing, but all right. As of today, July 19th, 2019, it is available on Netflix. Complete honesty, I tried watching it. I could not get into it. 
I don't want to sound condescending, but Bruce does not sound like he did in his heyday. Yeah. I don't want to say he sounds... He's 69. Bad. Yeah. But he doesn't sound good in my... He's just not my style. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. Also, the just the documentary wasn't filmed interestingly. Like... Yeah. It's one camera angle, I feel like, and they just show it. So, I don't know. Uh, this brings us to 2019, which... I just found this by chance. I guess because I had been on Springsteen's website, someone's targeting me with some web ads. Yeah. <laughs> as as you do. This year, at Sundance Film Festival, a movie called Blinded by the Light premiered. You can, okay. you can only buy... like It's not being shown in theaters. You can buy it on Blu-ray or like stream it. But it's set in 1987 and tells the story of a young British-Pakistani Muslim teenager who wor- like worships Springsteen as his hero. He's like... These stories speak to me, like these songs speak yeah. to me. His dad, being a traditional Pakistani dad, is like, no, there's no way you can relate to this guy. So it kind of just tells a story of how like music speaks to people across yeah. all different like backgrounds and genres. And Bruce Springsteen and a 15 year old British Pakistani Muslim kid have nothing in common. That's so nice, though. It's so, such a unifying message. I was like, that's that's a pretty cool. Pretty cool story. The I've only seen the trailer because I was not. It's not available to watch yet as a like a download or anything because mm-hmm. it's very very new and it needs to make the you know the the film festival Go circuit first. Yeah, it looks very interesting and very well done. So this brings us to the end of the story and the reason that there are no crazy drug induced bender stories is. Bruce ran a really tight ship for his band. He saw the the destruction that his the alcohol caused his right. dad. Like he he said from like an early age, he would have one or two beers and start to feel like he lost control and didn't like that feeling. So he made it a point to not drink. He saw friends do dumb stuff on drugs. He made a point to not do that. And if you wanted to be in the E Street Band, you had to pretty much sign a contract that said you would not do drugs. You would not. Uh, abuse alcohol you could drink after a show but you had to be real careful about it you would be on time and sober for all rehearsals and all performances wow. and if you were not on the bus when it left the city you would get left behind i respect that not a lot of people will do that and have no. that kind of management experience because it's not like it's not him being a tyrant it's him like making sure he gives the best for his fans like i yeah. see the purpose behind it I mean, we've heard and that's um, really respectful I mean, we just talked about the who uh, yeah. They maybe should have enforced some of these rules. <laughs> exact opposite of that. So yeah, that's that's why. I mean, he has an amazing career. He's still performing. Um, he's still kicking. He has a really, from what I'm hearing though, it sounds like he has a really good heart. He's a really good heart. He's very private, so that's also why there's not a lot of stories out there about him. Even in his book, which is the autobiography about his life, he focuses a lot on his career and stories with his bandmates. Not so much his family. Not so much his family. The first third maybe talks with his family but it's you know your basic high school early life stuff it's nothing like super deep which i mean i respect privacy is important but he he just he's got a really good soul i feel like he he's very tender-hearted and just cares about people and telling people stories right and while i may not be a big fan of his music i appreciate that that sentiment totally so with that being said it's a good story there's your calm before whatever storm I cook up on next episode. Oh, I'm sure. I have an idea of what I'm doing next, oh, so no. it's not going to be any better. Yay. 
I have I, my next one picked, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. So with that being said, the, the beer of choice for this episode... Yes, what are you drinking? ...is a New Belgium Citradelic, which is a tangerine IPA, which is kind of warm now because we've been sitting here for a really long time. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. I don't know if I'd... Yeah. I would drink it if it was like the only option. It has a nice tangerine taste that uh, cuts are, a little bit of the bitterness of an IPA. There are other beers I prefer. Yeah. But I bought it because of the name, because Citradelic is cute. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And you also can leave us a review. We'd love to hear how you think we're doing. So go ahead and give us some stars. Give us a review. Who knows? We may read it on air or on recording. Um, special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff and Lauren Page Photography for our cover art. And also, shout out to Backline Coffee and Speaker Tree for giving us coffee fuel and giving us awesome records to listen to. Um, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. You also can follow each of our personal accounts. Mine is at Bethann Tarpley, that's B-E-T-H-A-N-E, and then at Leah Elizabeth J. J. Um, other than that, that's it. Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. Don't drink a lot of alcohol. Be like Bruce. Be like Bruce. (laughs) What would Bruce do? (laughs)